A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Dominic Fifield of The Athletic. Some games need no hype, but we'll try anyway. Manchester City against Liverpool, with the Premier League title on the line, is as big as it gets. We'll look into all aspects of the match, but first, the big picture. The teams can't meet in the Champions League unless they reach the final. They're due at Wembley for an FA Cup semi-final. If Liverpool win their remaining Premier League fixtures, they're champions. A City victory at the weekend will tip the balance in their favour. But Miggs, isn't the reality that both teams are going to drop points before the end of the season? I actually wouldn't say that, to be honest. I think <laughs> the proof of this season almost, and maybe most relevantly, the proof of 2018-19, which it feels like we're getting a repeat of now. I mean, in that it was one of the greatest title races ever in terms of high quality because they just won every game. But that was actually oddly lacking in dramatics because of that. There weren't twists. And I think we could have potential for that now. City certainly have the more forgiving run. Liverpool have a do more difficult run in. Where, at, But if you just look at the sort of form Liverpool are on, they just seem in that sort of kind of almost a, this flow state where they're so capable of getting the job done. Now, of course, that could be disrupted by Sunday. If they don't win, then suddenly it might be rock. But if they do win, then suddenly it might be takeoff. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I must say, I, well, I don't discount they could obviously both drop points. I'm probably more of the mind that this will be... Uh, it really could come down to this. Yeah, well, let's try and drill down into it a little bit, if we could, please, Dom. And against the backcloth of, you know, as Migs was saying there, remarkable, almost unprecedented consistency. I, I saw something on social media this morning from uh, Henry Jackson where he tallied up the points since the start of the 2018-19 season, which was 144 matches. Man City, 338 points. Liverpool, 337 with an average points per game of 2.34 which is ridiculous so drilling down into that the run-in City's got a better run-in do you think? Well marginally on paper I'd be slightly wary though of of, of discounting the, the, the teams that they're they're playing against there'll be, there'll be some of them will, those fixtures will be awkward I mean you know, Wolves away, I'm looking at, I mean, Leeds away, so unpredictable, Leeds. You don't know what's going to turn up there. I think any game against Newcastle at the moment has the potential to be slightly slightly awkward. West Ham away, penultimate match as well. I mean, they could be competing arguably for 
for Europa League or even, you know, dare I say it, top four, possibly qualification. Probably not, but there is that possibility. With Liverpool, I mean, obviously, when you throw in games against Manchester United and and, and Everton, although Everton uh, are beatable by most teams at the moment, and, and Spurs in there as well, they are, on paper, the more awkward fixtures, the more difficult fixtures, trickier. But uh, I, I just hope that that one or two of these teams does throw a spanner in the work, so it's not just a procession for both both the sides. Like I can see them both dropping points over the over the run-in, but probably both dropping points on Sunday, and then and then after that, it's 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 wins all the way, which would obviously suit City. But but. I just I hope there is a bit of drama. I hope there is a bit of an unexpected thing, and we have we have seen it. We've seen it more of late with City, you know, frustrated at Sellers Park when they they really should have won the game, but they didn't have that finish in their locker to to prize Palace apart. And maybe there are few teams will look at that and think they they, they can be blunted. In which case, you know, there there may be a, some late drama, a late twist in the tale. Mm. Well, we do love a bit of uh, narrative, don't we, Migs? How about? Manchester City needing to win Aston Villa on the last day, May the 22nd, and a certain Steven Gerrard turning up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but there's, there's all of these sort of little subplots throughout that fixture. And, of course, on Liverpool have to play Villa as well. So that could... I mean, given, given, the, given this week has already seen a lot of discussion about the referee, about the timing of their Stiga leaks... What could that produce if there's kind of so we 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 could be getting into ninety five ninety six territory and Sir Alex Ferguson comparing performances against United to compare performances against Newcastle, but yeah, <laughs> there, there, there's, there's there's so much in it. But yeah, but I'm, I'm still of the mind that the two of them will just motor away. Although again, actually, I suppose maybe I'm a, a, a little hasty there in the sense that who if one team loses this game, it could well. Derail them. But then I suppose there's another historical precedence there as well in that in 2013-14, in a game that was actually built up in similar ways, it was Liverpool that won, but City that went on to win the title. But yeah, but I do th- I do think just generally these title races are different from the past just because of the relentless levels both these teams are capable to go to, where they're much more capable of putting on wins and the bounds. It's a little bit like uh, the El Clasico era, or the, like the real top quality El Clasico era in Spain between, say, 2009 and 2019, where it was because the two of them won so many of the other games, it put even more importance on the individual matches between each other. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I do love the smell of paranoia in the morning you know, when you're talking about um, you know, people looking at fixture lists and you know, the intensity of the opposition and everything else. I suppose also in that environment, Dom, you know, Migs mentioned the referee there. I was astonished, to be honest, that they didn't appoint Michael Oliver. Now, we've got Anthony Taylor and Paul Tierney, who's got history with Klopp doing VAR. Each have Mancunian associations. I'm not saying that means anything, but does all this place unnecessary pressure on the officials on Sunday? Well, look, it might do, but slightly but I, I think that they they they'd be confident enough to rise above that i really i really don't think we should be deflected by 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 that kind of debate i i, 
Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, I, 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 I think it's it's just not it's just not helpful, really, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I agree. And Michael Oliver is the outstanding official in the in the Premier League at the moment. So in that regard, it is, it is surprising that he's not involved. But there there may well be reasons for that that, that we're unaware of. And uh, but I, I I don't think it. Uh, we've got two that, as Mig says, two of the most brilliant teams that we've ever seen in the in the English top flight competing here. And if we're going into that. A, a mouth-watering fixture like that, a clash like that, worrying about vague yeah. concerns over the referee, then I think we've got a problem. Mm, okay, on to football then. <laughs> what about the? You know, let's let's sort of try and break it down a bit if we can. European takeaways from from midweek. What was your view of Liverpool, Migs? You know, most salary is he in a, a little bit of a, a lull? It does feel like that, doesn't it? Now I suppose like, you can't actually call it and but a lull given his scoring rate over the past few years, and particularly actually the start of this season, around October, November, when he scored against City with that amazing goal, and that was one of what, like, I think he was on a rate of one per game at that point. We were talking about real peak Ronaldo-Messi numbers, whereas now he's, what, he's, got, he's got one in seven, and that was a penalty. And I, actually, that coming off, that brilliant goal against Norwich, which seemed kind of, in itself, real kind of uh, Mo Salah distilled. But yeah, he is a, he is in a bit of a lull. There's no other way to describe it. But I mean, given his capacity to rise to the occasion, given his quality, it was the danger for City. There is he. It is a sort of game where he can suddenly produce. I mean, even seven games isn't really long enough to be talking about any sort of pronounced dip. It still feels like just a just a blip, and it, he still could be hugely dangerous. Obviously. Yeah, what about further down, further back down the pitch, Dom? Canate played in uh, midweek. Would you select him or Matip uh, to play alongside um, Van Dijk? I'd go Matip personally. I think he's been outstanding. Actually, Canate obviously scored in in, in midweek, but, but he also was culpable for the the goal that Benfica managed in, in that tie with an air air kick at the the back post. So. He's he's you know he's done well in 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 periods this season um, and his first year in in England but but I I do think that Matip is actually his game has risen to another level with 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 fitness has has come rhythm and and uh, we've really seen evidence of of his quality alongside Van Dijk there so I I, I would imagine that would be the, the first choice centre half pairing and and uh, that they they would step out together on Sunday but. Um, God, it's it's nice to have so many options, isn't it? I mean, we we've got Joe Gomez in that in that Liverpool setup as well, who's now making his name as a backup right back to Trent Alexander Arnold. And and I mean, go back two years before the knee injury, then Gomez was was going to be a centre half regular for England. So there's a lot of options there for for Jurgen Klopp to be playing with. Mm, certainly, and if we're looking at options for City, Migs, Phil Foden, he has to play, doesn't he? Yeah, in fact. <laughs> I suppose it's it's remarkable. I suppose maybe in some ways it's a point of how how tricky it is to kind of navigate the number of difficult games like this. But given Guardiola's emphasis would generally think beyond the Champions League with all the stakes around it, it is actually it's hard not to think his decision to start Foden on the bench on on Tuesday was all about this game on Sunday. Now, of course, mm-hmm. you have to bring him on to not not necessarily rescue the game. But to change it, and that's all the more reason, of course, you think he just has to play now. But then, even even from that perspective, it's it's an interesting one because while Foden is obviously super fast, 
particularly with his feet. You do wonder with it, with the nature of these t- of these two teams and the way Liverpool's f- wing backs, because they're not really full backs, play up so high. Well, it, this this might be a game for a different sort of wide player for City. I do certainly think Sterling will start, especially because while he's obviously had issues at Anfield in this fixture, given his history, he's generally been really good at, at the Etihad. But then, of course, Foden has such a, a superb record in his fixture himself. What is it? Three goals and three now, including one of the great moments in this fixture of the last few years. We, we, we just a pity that it wasn't in front of a, a crowd, which was uh, that goal that essentially won the title last season. Mm. Where do you think Jack Grealish fits into all this, Dom? You know, he seems to be maturing, doesn't he? The, you know, the way that he, he resisted all that goading from the Atletico uh, players. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's an interesting one. I think, I think we. <laughs> As much as it's weird to say it and to admit it for a player that costs a hundred million pounds, it's almost as if you always have to give him this season to sort of come up, get to grips with what Pep Guardiola wants from him, and and where he fits into the into Pep's grand plan. He he will be a better player at the end of this season than he was at the start, and then next season you'd imagine he would he would kick on. And I think his talent is obviously undoubted. I mean, it's, 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 it's there. It was demonstrated every week as a talisman at Aston Villa previously. And I'm sure he will find his, his, his feet properly at Manchester City in time. But it's not, that's not uncommon. I don't think Miggs would probably agree. I I don't know. It it takes a while for players often to click into, into what Guardiola wants of them. And I think we've seen that a lot at times this season where he has looked on occasion, he's looked a bit lost. He doesn't, he hasn't always looked obvious what, what role he's meant to be playing in that team. But, but in, in time, I'm sure he will prove his pedigree and, and, and and become integral there as well. What's the line that a lot of players say about first working with Pep is basically, that you've essentially got to learn the game anew. You're, you're essentially learning a whole different architecture of football or mental architecture, if you like. And obviously some players are probably better disposed to that. And Grealish obviously has talents that Guardiola really likes, that he sees as a very, a very useful thing. But there might be a difference between that and just how he adapts to what Guardiola requires, which maybe has created a little, a little bit of a slowdown. But I can't help thinking of um, <laughs> a line that Ken Early had in his Irish Times column a few months ago, where, like, you know, Villa, Grealish was the great individualist. And, and, and it's, it's maybe one of the arguments why he would have been better suited to say Solskjaer is Manchester United. <laughs> but now, whereas a Villa, you know, who's getting onto the ball and changing games, <laughs> the compliment they give him at City is, Jack, you were the best at passing the ball back to, to Cancelo. Don't forget that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I suppose if we're comparing and contrasting, the goalkeepers, Dom, Alisson and Edison, you know, you probably couldn't put a cigarette paper between them. What's your view of the um, balance of power between the two of them? It's a really good question. I mean, it's something that's played out, presumably, with, with the Brazilian national team. I mean... Both outstanding goalkeepers, both brilliant with their feet as as well as with their with their hands. Their their the vision of their passing is superb. Their positioning excellent. I mean, they <laughs> like so much about these two teams. They are the elite of the elite, and I mean, right right up there. I I I I, I don't know. Maybe it's a bit unfair, but I I, I sort of it sort of feels as if Allison has, has stolen a bit of a march of late. But maybe that's I don't know. Maybe that's just because City 
when they monopolise the ball in, in some of their games, they just they don't concede that many chances. So Edison doesn't get much of a chance to show what you can do. But in a game like this, yeah, you're right. You, you'd like to think that both will be busy. We, we've had, I'm sure we've had occasions in the past where where the top two have met and cancelled each other out and it's been a stale, you know, and goal is stale, mate, and, and not as exciting as the build-up. I just get the impression with these two teams, though, at this stage of the season, with with so much on the line and and with potential, we've got the FA Cup semi final to come, but potentially a Champions League final, maybe down the line. It's this is actually a chance for them to inflict psychological damage as well, and not just in thinking wider than the Premier League title race, almost. And I, I just I think that will probably spark something far more entertaining than the than the usual stalemate between the top two. Hmm. Yeah, both teams to a large degree reflect the character of their their coaches or the managers. Guardiola, you know, he got through the the test provided by two banks of five uh, in <laughs> midweek. You know, he's talked about you know, Brazil want him to be their manager after after the World Cup. You know, it always comes back with Guardiola, doesn't it? He needs to actually win the Champions League. Yeah, and all the more so because of um, because he didn't win at Bayern. What we're going on, it's going to be eleven years at the end of this season, and there's, there's no escaping. No matter what he does in in the Premier League, all the more so, I suppose, because of City's Im- immense financial strength, it really is going to come down to Europe. Which, of course, and and, it, and it's why even this title race could have yet another dimension, because as as you said at the top, it, it could well build up to the ultimate showdown between the two. A grand final in Paris, but but again, but, and that, that points to the dimensions of this fixture. It doesn't just, I was I was looking through this from the, for the piece I did this morning that should be out now, and looking at the kind of the various game, the various the final league game in any season between the top two or at the very least the teams in contention for the title. So like Liverpool against Chelsea in 2014, one of them ended up finishing third, but you would say they were both in it, and there's never been nothing close to this. There's never been a game where. Both teams have been going so for so much, where it's not just a title. City are going for the the, the treble, and I suppose I'm, I'm trying to think of a phrase for it, the, the international treble, <laughs> given they, they've already won the domestic treble. Liverpool are going for the quadruple, and with all of this, of course, infused then by these kind of greater desires. And Liverpool, they they missed out. It, it, obviously, the twenty or the the title in 2020 was emotionally such a huge moment, and yet for all that it still feels like it was missing something because they didn't get to celebrate it in front of their own fans. They didn't even get their, their bus tour in the end. So that, 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 that has an element of unfinished business there. And then there's no greater level of unfinished business than Guardiola and the Champions League. Mm. When we're talking about unfinished business, I suppose business in football is never finished, is it? Because teams continually evolve. You know, Dom, I, my sort of view from a distance is that you look at Jurgen Klopp and you see the next team just starting to emerge and evolve. You know, you've got Diaz in there making a, an instant impact. Is that part of you know, his, his excellence, that he manages to keep, keep them motoring on while just tinkering with the engine a little bit? Yeah, yeah it's about evolution, definitely. And I think that's probably probably the club as much as Jurgen Klopp. I mean, he's integrating the players, admittedly, and offering them chances, but the club is identifying a lot of these a lot of these players who will be, hopefully, mainstays of Liverpool's future. The club is constantly 
evolving and the, the recruitment is evolving and, and Klopp buys into that and yeah and players are are making an impact I mean Diaz is a is a is a prime example there have been others that haven't worked quite so well we should admit that I mean Minamino when he was bought was meant to be the next big thing and it hasn't really worked out like that it's taken others longer to really make a, a prolonged impact and you could argue that for I'd even Naby Keita who's been excellent of late but but there were periods where you wondered whether that was a signing that was going to necessarily have the desired effect. But that 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 forward thinking attitude, I think City have it as well to to a large degree. The best clubs do that. The best clubs aren't reactive. They're they're, they're forever thinking about what is going to happen next. And arguably, I mean, both these clubs in different ways have have means of doing that. That that, that plenty of other teams in the division would be envious of. I mean, the city's finances, Liverpool's Liverpool's ability to use the money that they've got at their disposal as well, very, very cannily, and spend when they need to spend. That allows them to, to plan ahead and to make sure that this team keeps developing, keeps developing and maintains itself at the, the pinnacle. Too many other clubs have 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 left left things slightly too long in terms of their their team's evolution. I mean, we won't go back a few years and we thought Tottenham were going to be a major force, but they, they almost waited too long to to integrate the, a new a new level of player or a new breed of player. And as it is, there were too many that needed changing at, any, at one time and it's just, it's just petered out. could argue possibly with, with Chelsea as well, although they were potentially hampered by FIFA transfer bans. To a certain extent, I don't know, it's... it's it's the best planning has been conducted by City and Liverpool, and, and that's why I think one of the reasons why they they are the two elite clubs in the division. Well, that's it, isn't it? I mean, what, what, like as, as you were talking there, Tom, it's basically it's the wealthiest club who have a lot of intelligence against yeah. almost the most intelligent club who have a lot of wealth. Yeah, and Liverpool have while they can't match City financially, without almost being articulated by that move seven years ago where they basically they couldn't keep Raheem Sterling they've got around it by getting ahead of the game so often and you can even see that now in the way I mean the, one of the players that could be influential or actually two of the players that could be influential on Sunday Diego Jota and uh, Luis Diaz where it already feels like they're I mean they're obviously successors to this great front three who are already who are already playing but it's almost like Liverpool are, are solving a succession issue before it becomes an issue uh, with the other, of course, the other side being Salah and so much going on there over the contract. But you compare that to so many other clubs who almost kind of wait until the last possible moment before finally succeeding some of their greats. And it, re- it really, it really speaks to the, the the sophistication and the canniness with which Liverpool go about things. And to be fair, for all City's wealth, and we have said so much about it on this podcast, I think as um, as Arsene Wenger once said, it's not just that they have money; they have ideas. And again, compare them to Paris Saint-Germain or Manchester United, uh, where they, they do really use that, that money in the most effective way. If it is Manchester City, this will be their fourth Premier League title in five seasons. You know, as we've said, Liverpool are operating at a, a, lesser, a lesser level financially, but they're really smart and strategic. A wider question, Dom, um, you know, beyond Sunday... Do you think English football is destined to be dominated by the same four or five clubs for the foreseeable future? Well, I suppose you could argue that English football has been dominated by the same four or five clubs for the last 20 years, with one exception, winning the title in 2016. 
I think we have to be careful to assume that 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 this is what it's going to be like for the foreseeable because if, if anything I mean Chelsea for example has, has just demonstrated how freakish football and life and society can be <laughs> they you know reigning European and, and and world champions and and suddenly cast into this immense uncertainty and we, we don't know what they're going to emerge as when their new owners come in which will be probably before the end of the season but we you know will that mean that they get dragged back into the chasing pack further back into the chasing pack because they're obviously still playing catch up to to City and Liverpool at the moment you, you never know what's around the corner that's the bottom line how are Liverpool going to to react in future with a with a slightly tweaked and, and new recruitment department is it going to be as efficient as it has been what will happen with Manchester City we, we again we don't know it's it's we're in the realms of geopolitics sometimes aren't we I mean anything could happen overnight so I suspect that the elite will will still always be the elite. I mean, we we still talk about a, a, a big six, and I imagine that that one of those six will be winning the title for the foreseeable, unless because because Leicester City was so that was so unusual. That was so. I mean, that 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 almost proves the point. It was such a freakish occurrence when they when they went and won the title. But that doesn't mean that there's no drama. That doesn't mean that there's no intrigue. That doesn't mean that that things can't change overnight, as has been demonstrated at Stamford Bridge this season. Yeah. Well, I suppose we are talking about the institutionalisation of, of elitism, aren't we, Migs? You know, you think about it, introduction of five subs after a campaign led by Jurgen Klopp. Well, that plays into their hands. Uh, and then we've got these latest so-called reforms of the Champions League by UEFA. Uh, what do you make of all that? I'm actually, I must say, staggered by it. Well, actually, not, not staggered in one sense, but not surprised, and very concerned. Yeah, just, just as we, just to be clear, Migs, we're talking about, you know, these reforms, including basically coefficient places for the wealthy who fall on hard times. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I, I do, I just find it given. Basically, European football and UEFA had a free hit after the Super League for real reforms in the direction. Because what was the Super League, basically? It was the biggest elite clubs, you know, almost... The, the real power of the Super League for so long that transpired was not its inaction, it was the threat of action. And once that happened and it failed, so much of that power went away. So that makes it all the more surprising that UEFA has actually gone the other direction now and allowed the institutionalization of a Super League, which is pretty much what this is. Because all moves like do this are basically, they allow the guarantees that the biggest club wants, which allows them guarantees in terms of income. And what does that do? It basically just increases the financial gap in football. It, 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 it just like conditions more power towards the biggest clubs who already have that strength. And that's why it's such a concern. And it's, and it, it, it just amazes me from, from two levels. One, that UEFA have gone that direction. Two, that UEFA have gone that direction given the current landscape. And given the fact that the only real threat of a Super League right now is basically the three remaining big or big European clubs, Barcelona, Real Madrid and Juventus, going to the European Court of Justice with a case that many believe is 50-50 legally, but most people involved can think won't even get to a court case. And I'm, I'm, I'm just amazed right now. I'm hugely concerned because it's basically, it's a Super League by another name. 
Yeah, and there are some clubs that you know almost behave as though they think they've got a god-given right to a Champions League place. You know, no surprises. I'm thinking of Man United there. You know, a lot of speculation this week. I think we're just waiting confirmation on this one. Eric Ten Hag taking over after the summer, but the compensation has been agreed with Ajax. Good choice, but a risk for all concerned, Dom? Probably more of a risk for him than for them. I just, I don't think anything's going to change at United necessarily unless they, they get the structure around him right. Do we have any faith that they, they're going to do that? They have about 13 sporting directors in, in place <laughs> at the moment, all, all presumably targeting different players, different types of players. Their recruitment has been an absolute shambles for for a length of, for a length of time. Not when purely when you look at the amount of money they've spent and what they've spent it on. I mean, because you know, given given better organised clubs that amount of funding to go and operate in the market, they'd you know, most most would have gone on and, and provided a real title challenge. But United have United just wasted it, and I. I, I you know what, actually, Mark, and I know this will probably annoy a load of oh, United following listeners, but the whole United thing bores me silly now because it's not going anywhere. Let's let's get change at that club. Yeah, let's get Ten Hag in, but let's make sure it's proper change and let's change everywhere else in the club as well so that they're, they're organised, they're structured. They just need to look across Manchester and see, see how a club can be structured properly and all components working together towards the same end because at the moment it's too disparate it's too it's it's too improvised almost and it's driven by 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 things that aren't there's no strategy there's no overall strategy we've been saying that for what feels like about three years and it's it's tedious now it's tedious yeah well i suppose it doesn't all go well when you've got the club uh, seemingly set on trying to pick his number two for him which doesn't make too much sense there's always someone worse off though isn't there uh, Everton are at home to Manchester United on Saturday a traditionally spiky fixture Migs that's going to be sad again by frustration on both sides isn't it yeah actually it's, it's amazing the way the Premier League has fallen away in that oh, it, it's these two Manchester Liverpool figure, fixtures in terms of the cities actually mirror each other and while Liverpool City is an example of probably the two best-run clubs in Europe right now. Everton and against United is actually probably an example of, collectively, the two worst-run clubs in Europe right now, pound for pound. Obviously, there are clubs across European football in worse, more worrying states. But in terms of the resources of both and how they've been used, the level of underperformance and the level of real football intelligence is actually... It's almost shocking. And they both have the same... So many the same problems in the same ways... One of them being because they've made so many bad decisions, it's left both with these squads on different levels that have been put together to divisions of so many different managers leading to kind of dysfunctional teams, but also now groups that have also got, that, that have got used to get rid of managers, getting rid of managers. So even now it seems like, I mean, Rangnick was probably always had a little bit of a thankless task here because he was coming in for an interim job. And, and there, I think there are fair discussions over his exact qualities. It didn't suit what they needed, but almost kind of like it was a, a long-term man in a short-term job. Then Everton, already you're hearing all sorts of stuff coming out of the Everton dressing room about how, echoing what was heard at Chelsea, to be fair, about how they're not that enamoured with Lampard. There's questions about both man management 
and uh, and tactics. And yet, even if that's true, it it almost feels a bit difficult to absolve the players because just because they've got used they've, they've played under so many different managers now, and it's been perpetual decline. And yeah, and really, uh, and of course, it could be all this could up could add up to a very decisive game, particularly in the relegation battle, because it now feels fanciful that um, United will get Champions League. Although, in, from that perspective, if, ever, if Everton do manage to get their act together, or at the very least are less hapless than United in this one game, it could finish off United for the top four once and for all. Mm, I think it's going to be a heck of a game, actually. And, and it's a Saturday lunchtime BT Sport game. I just see that you know, desperation might fuel a real humdinger of a game. On Frank Lampard, Dom, you know, he has been critical of his players' character, you know, reasonable when you see the manner of their defeat against Burnley and other defeats recently, but that's dangerous, isn't it? Well, it is. You're right, it is. And to do it publicly, I suspect he, behind closed doors, he's he's actually trying to be more positive. I mean, the the frustration thing for him and for Everton at the moment is that, I mean, they, they, they could easily have been... You know, two or three goals up at, at, at Burnley after recovering from that early deficit, and they they had chances to extend the lead that they they established with the two penalties in the first half. But it's the capitulation, it's the it's the defensive vulnerability and fragility that that they they are a team that 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 implodes too often, and that probably well that actually it may it may well be born of a, a dearth of quality, but. But it probably is a fragility in terms of of belief and conviction, and born of of confidence as well. And they're in a rut. Um, the the big question about Lampard and and the big debate over his appointment was whether he would be able to adapt his own knowledge of the game, which has all been really largely, apart from the spell at West Ham, being spent at the upper echelons of the of the Premier League and elite football and competing for trophies, can he adapt what he's learnt there to to keeping it a, a team in the division? And at the moment, the, the the away form is abysmal. I mean, absolutely abysmal. They they play well for periods in games. I, I, I went to the cup tie, the quarterfinal at, at, at Selhurst Park, and the first 15 minutes of that game, they were excellent. You thought, well, this is going to be a really, really difficult match for... For the, for the home side, but come the end, it was four 0 to Palace, and it was, and Everton looked utterly broken, and it's 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 about getting those, it's about making a mark in those periods where they're in the ascendancy, and and getting so far ahead that the fragility at the back isn't going to isn't going to come back to to haunt them and hold them back into 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 trouble. But I wonder, I wonder. I mean, everybody's sort of writing writing them off because of the the tricky nature of their of their fixtures, but actually they they're probably a team that. Probably a lot of egos in that team that feel as if they should be competing with, with the better clubs on an equal standing. So maybe, maybe that will get their juices flowing, and they'll, and they'll be they'll be more at themselves against against better quality opposition. Because, quite frankly, they've they've been fading badly against against the, the sort of middle of the road teams in that division. Yeah. Well, if you look at their next six fixtures, the United games followed by two against Leicester, Liverpool, and Chelsea, before what logically is a winnable game against Watford. Um, they lost 5-2 at home to Watford, though, didn't they? They, they lost did. 5-2 at home to them. So it's not that's not an ideal fixture. <laughs> and it could be like Watford's last right. So they may need to win that to stay in the division. Mm. Speaking of staying in the division, Migs, 
you know, it's a rough calculation inevitably, but how many points do you think keep you up this season? It, it actually it does feel like it's been a little bit charged lately. I mean, there's always that danger, I think, when you get to a certain point of the relegation battle. And there's that feeling when T when I mean with this one we actually thought it was written off for so long in terms of um in, in terms of say Watford in terms of Norwich only for them to have a rally. And same with Leeds, who obviously looked in, in free fall, only to bring in Jesse Marsh and and recharge themselves. So just looking now, well, Leeds are on 30, Everton are on 25. It, it's probably going to be, I think, there's eight games left. Usually there's a bit of a burst from teams who stay up who get at least three wins. I think about 35, which is actually which is more than a lot of recent seasons, which, went, which are around, some of them were around 33, 34. Obviously, we're, we're, we're a long way past the days when it was a 40-point threshold just purely because of kind of the financial disparity in football now and the way or the polarization of football now. Um, so yeah, I'm thinking 35, which is the case means Burnley have a lot to do. <laughs> they do. Well, they they you know they they have uh, Norwich. They're at Norwich on Sunday. Dom, you know that's a bit of a last chance saloon game, isn't it? Burnley have to win that match. I I, I Norwich Norwich are done. Norwich aren't aren't, aren't recovering. So Burnley have to win that match and. I think that uh, Sean Dyche will take a, a lot of heart from the the second half recovery in midweek against Everton. They probably conceded a few too many opportunities to Everton for his liking, and God, they would wish Ben Mee was back in that team. I mean, he must. He's. I mean, their form had been so bad since he dropped out through injury. I don't think they got a point prior to the Everton match with, with, in his absence. And but you know, if if. If they can get a result at Norwich and they've got successive wins at this time of the season going into the last seven fixtures, that will give them proper, proper heart. They've still got a game in hand, I think, on on the teams immediately above Everton. I, 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 and I, I, moreover, they've actually got a, a squad and a, who have, have been through this before, which is what Everton don't have. So I think that if they win at Norwich, I'd actually fancy them to stay up um, and find a way of doing it. Yeah, because I suppose if they get out of the relegation zone at Everton's expense, uh, you know the psychological damage will be huge. Because yeah, yeah. Well, then by looking further up the table, if we could please, uh, gents, the battle for fourth, which I suppose we should uh, call it. Probably the phrase has been trademarked already. Are we really talking about two, two here, Spurs and Arsenal? And if so, Spurs are at a struggling Villa. That's um, one for them to win, isn't it, Migs? Yeah, um, and it does just feel something has shifted a little bit with Spurs now and that as if what Conte is trying to do has just sunk on a slightly deeper level. They're that bit more consistent lately. The performances have that bit greater conviction. And from a situation a week ago where it looked like Arsenal's great advantage was actually that regardless of how they did in the big six games, they, they, Arsenal had made a real virtue of winning all the other matches then they go and drop points at Crystal Palace, which just suddenly kind of, you know, it undermines them to, to a fairly significant degree and how they respond is going to be huge. Whereas on the flip side now, it suddenly feels like it spurs with that momentum and that you wouldn't count against them in any individual game. Whereas only a month ago, they looked almost so erratic. And it was actually almost the opposite where because it was Conte, you could count on Spurs to get have a brilliant game plan and a big match as we saw against... City, 
but then almost kind of fall flat in the next game. Whereas it now feels like that's flipped. And so I'm, I'm very 50-50 there. So like a week ago, I would have said it was all about our, like that it was going to be Arsenal for certain. And now <laughs> I'm very dubious as to that because just the, the nature of Tottenham's performance against Newcastle. And there was actually a little bit of a, one thing it reminded me of, and I, I'm not sure, I'd be curious as to Dom's opinion on this. It reminded me a little of when Chelsea suddenly clicked into form around September, October 2016, just after those two bad games against um, Liverpool and Arsenal, where suddenly they, 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 he changed the formation, they got a few results right, and then suddenly they just went up a level and started to batter teams. It's definitely, de- the penny drops, doesn't it? And and the, 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 the players suddenly click into gear, as you say, and it's almost like they, they suddenly feel comfortable in the system that he plays. It's taken a bit longer, obviously, with Spurs, but there's been a lot of chopping and changing, and I don't think the... Um, too many of their players were initially out of form and I think fragile after what had happened previously. But but they do have a real rhythm to their to their play again at the moment. It was only not that long ago that they were winning one week, losing the next. I mean, it was consistently win loss, win loss, win loss, and then it's just they've just suddenly hit a gear and and have and have kicked on. And and Arsenal, I mean, it, a couple of things on them. I mean. It, the the shock of that first twenty five minutes at Sellers Park, where they were, they were really battered. It was like, it was like a throwback to, I don't know, tail end Wenger and maybe early days Arteta, where the the team was being bullied out on the pitch by by a side that really shouldn't be bullying them. But moreover, the the paper thin nature of that first team squad suddenly becomes a bit exposed when. Kieran Tierney's out when Thomas Partey hobbles off, when Lacazette isn't firing as your only real striker on on the books, and you know if that if that triumvirate behind the, the forward isn't isn't on song, they don't look quite as difficult a team to play against as as they have done in in recent weeks. So it's a, it's a massive test of Arteta. This weekend against you know what is on paper a, a failing Brighton team, a, a, a team that's going through the going through the mill at the moment and really struggling for for form and and, uh, and and points, but a team that has done quite well at times at the Emirates and against Arsenal. So can Arteta you know restore some of the rhythm and and belief that was that was pepping Arsenal's charge prior to the international break? Yeah, it's a big test for him, isn't it, Migs? And, and Arteta's facing the dilemma of of decisive management, isn't he? Look, you know, who does he play at right back on Saturday after effectively telling the world that uh, Nuno Tavares isn't up to it? The fall off from Tierney and Tommy Asu is really damning, isn't it? So you know, make you know make what you will of that selection jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. Now, the, the the one thing to be said there, I suppose, I, I, I mean, so some of that is actually a product of how Arteta also manages his squad and that he can be, he can be so hard line. Now, the, the one thing people around Arsenal say is that someone like Cedric, who could feasibly come in, while, as you say, it is a drop-off from the, the, the two primary choice players, Arteta does appreciate a certain hardness of attitude, and that's what Cedric brings. So, I mean, that, that could offer something. But, yeah, it is... This this has been one of the I think one of the complaints with Arteta as well in that it feels like not that it necessarily can be prescribed anymore, but that he falls into certain templates. Then when it requires deviation of templates, Arsenal then then themselves need 
another kind of ma- another big betting in period, and it kind of it disrupts them a bit more. Whereas now, at this point of the season, it's all about kind of do or die. Now, to be fair, it shouldn't be discounted. I think, given that Arsenal are on the brink of Champions League qualification, they are ahead of schedule here. He has done a good job this season, Arteta. But if they don't get top four, uh, given the opening they've had, there will be a real sense of a squandered opportunity because they did have a, a significant advantage over Spurs. But then it could come down to this, whereas Spurs went in and put appointed, really were talking one of the current elite managers in the game now for all the issues around Conte, and there are a few, given how difficult he can be. Where an Arteta could well end up an elite manager, but right now he's just a, a budding manager. And, and this is one of his first big real tests in terms of actually that the next level of achievement. Yeah. Well, just uh, to end it all up, you know, all roads of the weekend lead to the Etihad. Predictions, please, um, gents. Dom, scoreline and perhaps consequences of that scoreline, please. Um, I, I, I will go 2-2. A brilliant, brilliant game. Consequences of the scoreline. I, I will predict that City will drop points in one game beyond that and Liverpool will steal the title. Migs? I'm going to go Liverpool to win the title. Uh, I think they'll win on Sunday and take it from there. And after that, let's see. Maybe, maybe this will be the season where they both actually finally... Where, whereas in 2019, they both had what the other wanted. Maybe this season will be the reverse. City, Liverpool get their league and City get their Champions League. Yeah, I'm probably going to go <laughs> completely the opposite. You know, I, I've had a special feeling about Liverpool this season. You know, that's why I tipped them to win the Champions League. My hunch is they're going to end up with a treble. Premier League might just be the one that gets away. I take City to squeeze a narrow win on Sunday, but you know, searching for a convenient fence to sit on, <laughs> a draw wouldn't wouldn't surprise me either. Uh, whatever, enjoy the f- game. I hope it doesn't disappoint. I don't think it will. In the meantime, thanks to Miguel and Dom for their insights and thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.